0: All right, here we go. It's uh, November 27th. Uh, we just had Thanksgiving to put us in the place. It's uh, uh, meat. This is the afternoon meet, more we're in Revelation, and we're gonna cover primarily verse 18. And uh, so we're gonna do communion at the end uh, when the Wangsguards get here, and uh, let's just pray to start off. We won't do any music today. We're gonna go right into Revelation. Lord, we... Uh, pause and thank you for life, all you give us, for breath, for uh, a savior. We thank you for the spirit that guides us. We pray your spirit will be with us in abundance as we continue to study revelation and uh, to understand what it has to say in context of the rest of the Bible and with the times and seasons that it describes. We love you, Lord, and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We left off at verse 17 last week, and this is what we read. John wrote, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, that right hand's important, and said unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. Okay? So we talked about many biblical characters who having had interaction with God, falling to the ground as dead. We mentioned uh, That upon John the Beloved doing this, he says, I fell as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Concepts that we discussed last week. But Jesus continues, and he says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Adds amen there. And then he says, and have the keys of hell and death. Okay. So that's our text for today. And perhaps next week too. Can't help it. It's good stuff. Today, we have kind of a chunk of information and just try to stay and let you know, let the spirit guide and let the information come in and we'll see if we can get through this. So again, Jesus says to John, I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Okay, so this passage is um, pregnant with meaning and therefore there are a number of various implications to it some of which will rock the status quo of orthodoxy. So we need to be sure that we don't allow its contents to push us off the edge of orthodoxy. We don't wanna be out there, but we wanna make sure that we understand the implications of what Jesus says there. I have the keys to Hades and death. What's he talking about, okay? So first let's admit, who is speaking here, all right? And what he says, it is Jesus speaking, Jesus of Nazareth speaking of himself at this point. Jesus of Nazareth speaking of himself, a man born of a woman, okay? Now, how can I say this? He just described himself in glorious terms as being uh, the eternal God that is used in the Old Testament. But I say it because he says, I am he who liveth and was dead, okay? So God does not die. We don't kill God, okay? You can't can't kill God, especially with the sword. So he neither did the fullness of God die within Christ. It didn't die when he physically died And so he walked the earth, when he walked the earth, uh, he was in flesh, and that flesh was going to die. It's not possible to slay God. And so I'm, I'm pointing this out so we can really, really divide when Jesus is talking about his deity and when he's talking about his humanity. And it does appear that Jesus, however, did die spiritually. So he experienced all forms of death. He experienced physical death and he experienced spiritual death. Jesus, the man born in Nazareth, how do we know he experienced spiritual death? Well, we've talked about it. When he was on the cross, he was saying, uh, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do, Father this, Father that, direct communication to his Father, and then it says clouds came, darkness fell, and he said, my God. He started, stopped referring to the Father as my Father, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe that when that darkness fell, Jesus died spiritually. Like we are all born into this world, spiritually dead, He died spiritually on that cross for our sin. Then when the light returns while he's on the cross, he then, the light returns and he returns to saying, Father, he starts calling him Father again. So I believe that Jesus experienced physical, spiritual death there for us. And remember that, if if you believe that, I believe it's right there for us, but remember that because we're talking about the man Jesus of Nazareth died as a man, and he says here, I am he who liveth and was dead, okay, so that helps us understand who he was and who's speaking here. Um, Humans die, and so we know that here Jesus is clearly identifying himself as the human man who now liveth, he says, and was dead. He says, but now I live forevermore. This is radical. So the Lord and Savior will never die again, ever. There's no dying of the Lord and Savior. He, now it seems to me, like the Father, is eternal. He, unlike the Father, when walking in his flesh, was not eternal. He was not, he was going to die, and, uh, and because he died. Uh, but now he's saying, I live forever. So we see a transition between the man born uh, of a woman under the law in in Nazareth and that he died, but now he says, I live forever. Uh, Before his passion, he, Jesus of Nazareth, was not going to live forever. He told his apostles, I'm going to die. They never really understood what he meant. I'm going to die. They thought he was the Messiah who was gonna reign forever and his kingdom was gonna reign forever materially on the earth. And he kept saying, I'm gonna go, they're gonna take me. And, and P- Peter even said, not so, Lord. And, and, and Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan, you know, and took the sword out and chopped off Malchus's ear. And Jesus heals the ear and he says, don't you want this to occur? Don't you want what's supposed to happen to happen? Meaning my death, spiritual and physical death so that the world could live. So, but here Jesus of Nazareth now says, I'll never die again, okay? Jesus of Nazareth is eternal and through faith in him, through faith in him, our mediator to the Father, we human beings born of women too, every one of us born of a woman are also eternal. By our faith in him, we too inherit eternal life. We too could say, I, we will never die again once we have experienced that material death. This is key. So again, through faith in him, we mortals, uh, will never die. We mortals will never die by and through our faith in him. Now stay with me. Try to stay, here we go. Do we die in any way as believers in him? Do we die in any way as believers in him? Uh, we do, we do die. Uh, in, Paul said, for as in Adam, all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So we know that everyone's going to die. But in contrast to that, Jesus says in John, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That's what it says. If you believe in me, you will never die, okay? But we have Paul telling us that as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So what do we do with that? If you don't have any understanding of scripture, you're gonna say that's a conflict. That's not a conflict. So Paul says, "In Adam will die. Jesus says, Jesus says, if you believe on him, you will never die. But we know that as believers, we experience physical death. So obviously, Paul and Jesus were talking about different types of death. And so right off the bat, we have to admit that for both Paul and Jesus to be correct, that in Adam all die, and Jesus saying, believe on me, you will never die, for both of them to be correct, we have to admit that belief in Jesus does not keep us from physical death. We will die a physical death, and that is what Paul was talking about. We all die spiritually, I mean, uh, physically, thanks to Adam, okay? But, as all universally physically die due to Adam, all will universally live again in resurrected bodies, thanks to Christ. So we know that death, physical death, is overcome by Christ and all uh, will live who believe on him and not. Physical death Uh, is overcome by Christ and everybody experiences a resurrection, some to uh, eternal life and some to damnation, but all are resurrected. So here Jesus, having had victory over the physical grave, will universally make all alive, though all will certainly experience physical death, whether they believed in him or not. Okay, so on this, hopefully we're all settled. There should not be a debate. Christians, even though they believe on Jesus, will die a physical death. Christians and non-Christians will all be resurrected. That's biblical, it's scriptural, and I think we should be pretty much settled on that. So now let's turn to the term death, dying, and die, that Jesus mentions here about him having the keys to, okay? As a mean to understand what it means when Jesus said in John, if you believe on me, you'll never die. Okay, what did he mean by that? He didn't mean physical death. So he meant something different there. And also in conjunction with verse 18, where Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys to hell and death. What death is he talking about there? Is it just physical? Is it spiritual too? Is it the second death, which we're gonna talk about? So he says, I have the keys to death. Many people will say, okay, that just means physical death. Or he has the keys to just spiritual death, and when you look to, on him in belief, he has the keys to open your heart and give you eternal life. They never apply it to second death, ever. They only apply it to Jesus having the keys to physical death and spiritual death that we experience when we're born into this world. Okay. But they de- very rarely talk about the second death. So. In my estimation, and on the board, this will help sort of break it up. There are two ways we need to approach this topic of Jesus saying, I have the keys to Hades and to death. There's two ways. The first is in the context of what the Bible's, how it applies to those in the biblical age. What he says there in Revelation to John, does it have a particular meaning to those of the biblical age? Or is what he says, does what he say there have meaning to everybody? And then secondly, how it applies to the post-second resurrection of Christ. And we'll talk about why I break it up that way in just a second. You probably already know. So the first period, how this revelation to John applies to the biblical age, deals with him as a savior to the nation of Israel and his church at that time, okay? Whether... That will be in the future too or not, we're not gonna talk about here. We're gonna talk about, first of all, let's try to decide what that actually means applied to the nation of Israel and to uh, the, his church that he's established. The second application is the period of time of dealing with uh, this initial period being passed and then what it means if that period is passed, if that age has come, what it means thereafter and, and how that applies. So we could break it down like this. The traditional view suggests still today that everything that we're reading about Jesus having the keys to Hades and death is going to take place later. The reason we have that view is we say, if unbelievers die, they go to hell. Jesus has the keys to hell. And if they, they, he also has the keys to death. He could have released them from hell. He could have released them in this life if they had believed. And so today we are in a traditional Orthodox belief that every time someone dies, they go to hell or they go to heaven. They go to hell or they go to heaven. That's what we say and we do it based off this not realizing that it could just have application to those in that biblical age. Stay with me. I know this is a little bit heavy. If the preterist, the full preterist view is correct, we need to see how things played out prior and up to his coming in the clouds and then how they have played out ever since, which removes us from the orthodox stance and places us in understanding this in a completely different way. So if you look under those boxes... Jesus having the keys to Hades and death, how this applies to those of the biblical age, underneath that we could write the uh, idealist view, the historist view, the partial preterist view, and the futurist view, because they all would say it uh, continually applies the same way today as it applied to them in the biblical age. But how this applies to a post uh, second coming of Christ, age, if the full preterist is right, then we have to answer what that means, Jesus having the keys to hell and death, to that term as well. So we have all the views under the first one. This applied to the Jews then, it applies to us now. Jesus hasn't come back when he does, then it will have some, some kind of finality to it. But for uh, the, the full preterist, they say, listen, he came to them as promised quickly, and so the application of him having the keys to Hades and death means something entirely different. And it's going to be up to you to decide what way you're going to lean. You may already have your view established. And as we read Revelation, you're going to say this doesn't. This none of this is fulfilled. It has a uh, application in the future. And then if you're a full predest, you're going to read that Jesus says, "I have the keys to Hades and death," and you're going to see this as having application to the. Biblical people then, and having a completely different application to people today. And that's what we're gonna talk about and work through. So that's what I'm gonna try to describe here. How how to take the contents of the last line of chapter one, verse 18, and explain them relative first to Jesus' work with the children of Israel and the church. And then next week we'll talk about how they could apply if you are of the full preterist position. So let's start. To begin, the literal Greek translation of this last part of the passage in 18 is, well, let me just read 17. It says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Then verse, okay? And then verse 18 says, and he who is living, and I did become dead. I know this doesn't sound really clear because it's the literal Greek translation. And he who is living, speaking of himself, and I did become dead. And lo, I am living to the ages of the ages, amen. And I have the keys of the Hades and of the death. There's an article there before both of them. If you read through the King James and most other translations, Jesus says, I have the keys to Hades and death. But in the Greek, he has the keys to the Hades and the death, okay? So he says, I was indeed dead, chi in gentleman, necros, and I became dead, is what he says. And then he says in the eros middle, participle, excuse me, participle of genomai, which is a definite reference to the cross. When he says, and I became dead, it's a reference to the cross, if you if you kind of cross reference that statement with all of scripture. And then he says, And lo, I am living to the ages. This is Zon Ami, which is a paraphrastic present active indicative that's saying, I am alive. Okay? For how long is this I am alive indicated? He says, unto the ages of the ages. Okay. Now in the Greek, there is no better way to say I'm never going away than to say I live from one age to the next age, to the ages, to the ages of the ages. It's better than any other way. Okay. If, if just to the ages means one thing, but this is an emphatic, strong expression that I'm never dying again. <clears throat> so also we can't help but note the use of I me, which is translated here to I am, used twice. I me is used twice. Three times it says I am here, but only twice it means I me, which is the Greek way of saying I am. But three times it's used here. In verse, uh, he says, I am the first and the last. He says in verse 17, that's a me, that's my name, which means I'm the self-existent one, and I will be who I will be from the first to the last. And then in verse 18, he says, and he who is living and I did become dead and lo, a me, I am living to the ages of the ages. So we have some real strong association there. When Jesus walked the earth, uh, he unapologetically said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. That was a claim then of the man born in Nazareth walking about who would die saying that he was, I am. And of course they picked up stones to kill him. Now we have him saying it again, I believe in two places and it's the proof. It's he is, this is it. So I, I, I just really, I like that. I'm reading into it, but I think it says something. And then after saying this, he says, amen. And that means this assuredly is. This is what I have said it to be, okay? I was alive, I, I, was, I died, I I became dead. And now I am living from age to age. Okay, all good, I think. And then he adds this intriguing point. And, there's an and, I have, so you understand my description of myself. Now he's saying I possess something. The keys of the Hades and of the death. I have the keys of the Hades and of the death. Of course, the King James puts it this way, if you're reading the King James, and, or also, I have the keys of hell and of death, okay? But the Greek says he has the keys of the Hades. So, again, we want to know what this means relative to them applying to those of the biblical age and then next week how it applies to the uh, post-second coming if he did come quickly as he says he would. So, Let's talk through about the, him having the keys. And let's just talk about the keys first um, of the Hades and the death. Keys are, you know this, emblematic of having control of something, complete power and control of something. And uh, over a people or a place or a, a period of time or whatever it is. So people can either enter, they can't enter or they can't exit without these keys in their possession or without the person who holds the keys opening that door and letting them in and or opening that door and letting them out. So he says, I have the keys to Hades and death. The Hades and the death, I've got the keys. Okay, so this man, born of a woman under the law, full of God, the fullness of the, uh, God had dwelling in him bodily. He walked about. He said, "I am the I am." They wanted to kill him. He dies. We have all this paradoxical nature of Christ. You know, even the apostles were uh, done for when he died. They thought it's over. He rises from the dead. He's reigning now. And here in John, in, in Revelation, he's saying, "Man, I've got it all now." And we know that the Father gave everything to him, so he has it all now because he's our human mediator between God and man. That's what we have. And so he possesses the ability to let in and to let out. In chapter three of Revelation, Jesus will have the following written to the angel at the church of Philadelphia. Revelation 3, seven says, "'These things saith he that is holy, he that is true.'" Meaning Jesus who says, "'Hath the key of David.'" Okay, now this is in Revelation, it's saying that Jesus has the key of David, okay? Meaning that he openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. No man's gonna open or shut. He will do the opening and shutting, it's up to him. That's in Revelation chapter three, which we'll get to. So here Jesus is described as having a key, and this is called here the key of David. Now, this is an introduction of Jesus into the church of Philadelphia there in chapter three, in order to better understand keys to Hades and hell, let's understand what it means for him to have the keys of David. And then we'll move forward. Going back to Isaiah 22, we read about Isaiah telling a man named Shebna, I think his name is Shebna, that another man, uh, Eliakim, is going to take over. Shebna, you're not going to be the ruler here anymore. Eliakim is going to be the ruler, all right? And this is what we read in Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. And the key of the house of David, I will lay upon his shoulder, Eliakim, Shebna. So he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So here in Revelation chapter three, jumping ahead a little bit, this passage is again fulfilled in Christ. And again, the key to the house of David is emblematically described as being laid on the shoulder of Eliakim, meaning that it's all in his control here. He walks, it goes with him. It's wherever he turns, it's on him. Eliakim before Jesus and then Jesus here would have total control, the key of David, the kingdom of David. What was that key to? Everything that David was about. So David's the one who established Jerusalem. So it was gonna include Jerusalem. It was gonna include all the nation of Israel. He was the king. It was going to include the 12 tribes, anything that has to do with Israel. Eliakim had the key and now Jesus in Revelation three is said to be the one who possesses the key and none come in, none come out without him. So we have that. Now we read that Jesus describes himself as having the key to the Hades and also to the death. All right, so as I said, in my estimation, there are two ways we need to look at Jesus' proclamation here. The first way is what does Jesus having the keys to Hades and the death mean to the audience of the Old Testament and the new and the church up to his second coming, whenever that's going to occur, and then does it have a different application if he did come in 70 AD, as the full preterists suggest, And then would him having the keys to Hades and the death mean something different, okay? So let's look at the board real quickly. And you can see Jesus having the keys to Hades and death, how this applies to those in the biblical age. And we need to now, looking down here to the far left side, it says keys to the Hades, and that's what I wanna discuss with you. In order to get our minds around this, we have to understand what the Hades is and then what the death is. Those two things are important for us to understand what it means Jesus possessing the keys to them for those of the biblical age. That's what we're talking about now. Forget about the full preterist view. It's not a difficult concept, but like all good things, it takes some work to get through. So it's really not that complex, but we know that the King James translates the Greek Hades into hell. This was one of the first big no-nos in my opinion, and the literal translations leave that word Hades that Jesus has the keys to. The literal translations do not say hell, they say Hades. And Hades simply means this, a covered place. That's what it means, a covered place, okay? A far different connotation then if we read Jesus has the keys to hell and then we, we take what we think of hell as and then it means something very different than what Hades has meant historically. So the word hell, it comes from the Saxon word. Now I'm talking just about hell here. From the Saxon word Helen, that's where we get hell from. And it's Helen in the Saxon language just means to cover. So it's the, the, uh, the appropriate word to cover. But to us today, hell means something very different than what Hades meant completely in the Old Testament. Okay, so right off the bat, there shouldn't be, in our opinion, an automatic unpleasantness. There is an unpleasantness to it. But an automatic badness associated with the term Hades and or when it's translated to hell in scripture. It's not automatically terrible, horrible, terrible, okay? If you get that in your head, you're gonna understand this better. And when we read about it in the Old Testament sense, because it's just, what is it? It's a covering place. That's all it was. Okay, covering from what? Covering from God. So it was bad, it wasn't great. But it wasn't the hell that we say it is every time you read it. So while not perfect because it is separated from God, it was a place all people from Adam, Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, all the way up to John the Baptist, they went to Hades. How can we say that in today's language? John the Baptist, Abraham, Noah, every single one of them before Jesus went to hell. Now that's a radical thing to say, but that's the truth. So we know saying that, that hell shouldn't be, shouldn't carry the negativity that it does with us in our language. We should say, ah, they went to the covered place. Why? Because propitiation hadn't been made. The perfect offering of Christ's blood hadn't been made. So there was no unity of those places, right? So... Now, we know that in scripture, there are three words to describe, there's more, but there are three words to generally describe this covered place. I'm gonna go in order so that we can continue to learn. Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, transliterated into English, is the first one. And the Hebrew word, it occurs 65 times in the Old Testament and 31 of those times, it's translated straight across the grave. Grave's a covered place, isn't it? In the Old Testament, it certainly was, both from God, because when you died, you didn't have access to God. There was no propitiation made, so you went to a covered place, okay? The grave, period, all right? Generally speaking, Sheol was the covered place of, I'm gonna say this, all the dead, everyone who died. And they went there after this life, and it was composed of two compartments, the best way I can describe it, There was a bad compartment, that's where we get the hell connotations. That's the prison that was in Hades, okay? And it's traditionally referred to, that prison is traditionally why people call it hell today because they think of the prison part as being this horrible, terrible place, and it was. It was a place of torments, Jesus said, but it it was part of Sheol as was paradise, the other part. And every departed soul went to Sheol, Hades, and they went to either prison or paradise. The hell prison part of Sheol was apparently tied to a phrase that deals with insatiability. And where there's a, a phrase that says enough is never enough in the prison part of Sheol versus the paradise part of Sheol called Abraham's bosom. Okay? So when Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, both went to Sheol. They both went to Sheol. Abraham's bosom was the paradise part, uh, under the covering, and then the prison part was where the rich man went. And uh, Abraham's bosom, a cool place, cool as in temperature, it seems, and the rest of it was equated with uh, a place of torture, okay? Now, I'm gonna talk about that in a second, but listen to the tone of Proverbs 30, Verse 15, which is describing the insatiable place, ready? The horse leech has two daughters crying, give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied, ready? Yea, four things that never say, one, it's enough. So we know that in the prison part of Sheol, as this proverb could relate to that, and I think it does, that people there can never say it's enough. They're always wanting. They're always wanting in the prison part of Sheol. It is enough. And they don't say, um, also that never says it's enough. Excuse me, the things that say it is, never say it is enough are the grave. That's translated Sheol there. The grave never says it is enough, meaning everybody, the grave wants everyone to die. The grave never says it's enough, okay? The barren womb, never says I'm satisfied. The barren womb says I want a child. The earth that is not filled with water and the fire never says it's enough, okay? So that is describing in language we can understand the conditions of the prison part of the covered place. Now in many ways, this passage affirms the concept or the hellish part that we describe today. It's never satisfied, especially as it directly unifies the circumstances given of the grave, never can get enough, water, uh, earth without any water, a barren womb, and fire is constantly seeking after fuel. They're never satisfied. Because of that proverb that we read and the Jews' association with it, more and more as time went on, we began to associate the prison part of the covered place with fires that continually burn in hell, okay? In 31 places in scripture, the word Sheol is translated as the place of disembodied spirits. That means the covered place where all spirits go that do not have a body, okay? Proverbs twenty-one sixteen calls the inhabitants of Sheol, whether paradise or prison, the congregation of the dead. Those who are spiritually, physically dead, that's their congregation. And remember, this was a congregation of good people, if we're gonna use that term, and bad, the Abrahams and the Korahs, all right? Numbers calls the prison part of Sheol the abode of the wicked, okay? But remember, Psalms 16, 10, 33, 49, 15, 86, 13, calls Sheol a place for good. You see, if we translated that straight from Sheol to our English language, many Christians would put hell there. But it would be wrong because it is also a place for good. It's the covering place, that part talking about paradise, of course. Job describes the prison part of Sheol. So you have to, when you look at the description, you have to say, what's he describing? The disembodied spirit that are in paradise or the disembodied spirits that are in uh, prison? Job describes the prison part as deep, dark and with bars. That's really interesting. No wonder they call it prison. And number 16 says the dead go down into it. Hence, we have the belief, fairly universal belief that hell is below us. It's some say it's in the center of the earth. So from all of this, we can say from the Old Testament sense that Sheol was a place that all dead go to and that it held both the wicked and the good, that it was down okay and that it contained a restful place a good place according to the scriptures i gave you and a place for the wicked and if it's a place for the wicked there are bars it's dark it's and there is nothing is ever satisfied in that place okay so there's the old testament explanation of sheol as translated hell by some translators okay here we go now we're into the new testament the greek word for sheol is Hades. Every time you read Hades, that would be translated by the Hebrews as Sheol. And every time you read Sheol, it would be translated into the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as Hades. Hades and Sheol. uh, They mean the same thing. Okay, there's a shorter way to say that, but I can't remember it. Sheol is Hades, Hades is Sheol. Automatically, we can see that there's a direct application to the children of Israel. Because prior to Christ, who they were promised, they were all going into that place. They're going into the covered place. David said, I know you're not gonna leave my soul in hell is how it translates in the King James. But really, I know you're not gonna leave my soul in Sheol. And so we translate automatically Hades uh, in the King James, unfortunately, to hell. And that starts, to, that starts to blur the lines of what we're talking about. And so what people have done is when they read the word hell, if it says Hades, they automatically assign what they believe hell is supposed to be. It is a prison, 1 Peter 3.19. It's a prison. The, 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 hell, the prison part of Sheol is a prison prior to Christ with gates and bars and locks Okay, that's uh, uh, Matthew 16, 18 and Revelation 1, 18, Jesus has the keys, so we believe it's a key that might be symbolic, of course, to something that locks and is unlocked. And it's located downward according to Matthew eleven twenty three 23 and Luke 10, 15, it's down below, down, downward. So the same signification as the Old Testament, okay? And prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the righteous and the wicked continued to be separated in the Hades, the the Sheol. Some to prison, some to paradise, all Hades. Jesus himself, as I said, called the prison part a place of torments. But this being said, and this clarification, you're gonna have to study out yourself. But I've studied it, at least from my opinion, which is limited, I have a really hard time believing that when people insist on calling Hades, I have a hard time believing when they call Hades the burning place, the burning place, Uh, and the fiery place, okay? Even though we almost always associate Hades with burning and fire. It's hot as Hades, have you ever heard your grandma say that? And, And, but that's a really, Let me make some observations. To me, it seems that the world, even though, well, just try to hang with me this way. The universe can be broken up into a couple realms, I think. One that's illuminated and one that's not. One that's fully, partially illuminated, one that's partially not. But there is either illumination or there is not. There is something that illuminates and brightens and there's something that obfuscates and darkens and and colors. It has long been admitted That darkness, and I don't know if we've talked about that here or not, really has nothing of itself. There is no such thing, tangible thing, as darkness. Okay? It's merely the absence of light. That's how it's measured. So there's no such thing as dark. None. Doesn't exist. The thing is, is the absence of light, which allows the dark to exist. Light, however, actually exists and can be measured and studied. Light can be refracted. They can do all sorts of things with light. And so it's it's said that to make matters clear, to brighten paths, to lessen the danger of things, to kill disease, we bring light in. That's, That's what we're doing. Where light is, the absence of light, darkness is not Okay, But in the absence of light, there is confusion and death and corruption and despair and depression and all those things, at least in the human world and perhaps as part of that prison part of Hades. In the first epistle of John, we read, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declared unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's all reality. He is all an actual thing. That can be measured and quantified and, and whatever, if you want to put it in the scientific terms. I don't know if that's possible, but. So God is light. Fully God is gonna be fully light. There's no darkness in him at all, right? And then move down here, I'm putting down, because that's what scripture says, where Sheol, Hades is. Lesser God, pulling away from him, lesser light. Then down below the covered place, no light, no God, complete darkness, all right? And it's a point of shadow and obscurity and darkness and blackness, uh, but not of its own accord. That's not a darkness that has its own accord. It's because of the absence of God. And so it's kind of like the same thing as cold. There's no such thing as cold. Uh, all there is is the absence of heat, you see. So we can't have, cold, it's this cold and hold it in our hands. What we're really measuring is this is the absence of being close to heat. So God so loved the world that he gave or sent his only begotten son who describes himself as a light that has come into the world. He illuminates, he shows, he brings clarity, and this illumination invites all by the spirit to come to him. So earlier in the same gospel, John the beloved writes of Jesus and says, in him was life and the light was the light of men and the light shined in the darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. Talking about that nation of Israel. And those who refuse to believe on him. So, while there's no thing in darkness, there is a power to darkness. Uh, In Colossians 1.13, God says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, which is in the light. Okay? Translated us there. In other words, its power comes by way of emptiness in the void of light. So, It is said to be life draining. Now, as I just mentioned, cold does not exist. Things that are cold are cold because they lack warmth and heat. Heat can be measured and studied and cold is merely the absence of heat. And so what we measure is how much heat is missing. And again, similarly, and if you wanna extrapolate this out and it's really gonna bother some people, but there's no such thing as depression and there's no such thing as misery and there's no such thing as woe and there's no such thing as trials and difficulty. There isn't. What there is is the absence of God. The full presence of God in us, which we don't have here, but the full presence of him would take all of those things and would remove them from our existence completely. We would not have woe or misery, and that's why we talk about heaven being a place of of complete joy because all the joy and, and, and all the misery and woe and disease and everything else is gonna be gone in the presence of pure light. But in the absence of him, in part or in full, there is all of those things that we give names to and we try to quantify them, but they don't exist. They just, what they do is they just really are the absence of him. But he hasn't made himself fully present because of our bodies, I'm guessing. I'm getting a little deep here, but anyway. There's simply the absence of his perfect joy and hope and love in the perfect after this world sense. So those, it is said, Jesus says, they love the darkness more than the light. That's how Jesus describes those who go to the prison part. They, lo- that, on this life, they love the darkness more than the light. And so they go to a place that is consummately dark. There's no, it's a, it's a covering. Again, dark and darkness, no essence. The absence of light or God is there. Remove God from any area or person and the result is death, hollow, empty, cold, void. And on earth, of course, that void, we fill it if we're not spiritually regenerated and even if we are with substitutes and idols and false gods to give us a false light which Jesus warns against. Beware of the light that's in you that it be darkness. He said, whoa, be careful. Be careful. All of this is to say that in the end, I don't believe we can assume that Hades is a burning place. All of that was just to tell you, I don't believe that. I think that's a misappropriation of some little hints that we've got from the description of Hades, and we amalgamated it into a thing called hell and we preach about it, that's where people go, is to hell, and they're burning, and you're gonna burn forever in hell. That is a complete misnomer when it comes to scripture. Because God is absent from there. So it's cold. There's nothing there. It's hollow. Torments are there. You might say, well, why did the rich man beg for water? Well, maybe it's the absence of everything. But because he begged for water doesn't mean he, he was in torments. But that does not mean it was a literal flame consuming his flesh. It means he was lacking something that he'll never be filled. It's never filled in that place. Now, stay with me. The lake of fire, which we will read about in a moment, is in the presence of Jesus. That's what Revelation 10 says, 14 or 1410. That's in the presence of Jesus and his angels, it says. And so, remembering that God is a consuming fire, an all-consuming fire, this is the fiery place. And fire is light, and the source of that light is God, and the burning that results from it is in the presence of God, and the burning is caused by the presence of God. That's the fiery place, the lake of fire. Now, you might say, this is all not important. It really is important as we get through and understand eschatology in the book of Revelation, and you'll understand why. So Sheol and Hades, the covered place was the home of all people prior to Christ. And though Jesus said to the rich man, that drop of water thing, it's an illusion to never ever being satisfied in that place. Still with me? All right. The third word, and I'll stop with the words on translated to hell in the King James is Giena. All right. And Giena is a Greek word that is the Greeks way of saying the Hebrew word Hinnom. The Hebrews had a valley called Hinnom. And that valley translated into Greek is called Guiena. And it was always used in the time of Christ as a way to describe a place of future punishment. Okay, Guiena. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, how will you escape the fires of Guiena? Okay, and so when he said that the fires of Guiena and the King James translates Guiena to hell, we now have more fuel, no pun intended, to suggest that Hades, hell, is hell, and that's where the fires are. But that's because there was a mixing up of terms. I'm gonna explain Guyana to you, or the Valley of Hinnom. It got its name from a place, and you probably most of you know this, mentioned in Joshua 18. And this valley, this Valley of Hinnom, which is is located in uh, Jerusalem, a valley right there, is a narrow ravine and it separates Mount Zion from a place called the Hill of Evil Council. And there, during Joshua's time and thereafter, idolatrous Jews would take their living children and they would sacrifice them to the god Molech. Molech was made of brass and he had brass arms and he was hollow and they filled Moloch with wood and lit him on fire till his arms and his body turned into glowing brass. It's a a figure for judgment. And they would lay their babies on Moloch's arms there in the Valley of Hinnom. And so, uh, and this place was also known synonymously as Tophet, which means stovetop fire. When the Jews returned from exile, they were put in exile because they had abandoned God and turned to idolatry. They were so abhorred by what their people did in the Valley of Hinnom called Gehenna, on the arms of Molech, the stovetop, that they made that place an actual location where dead bodies of criminals were tossed, human waste was thrown, trash and everything evil animals was thrown down over the city walls and into the Valley of Hinnom. And it burned there constantly. And because it supposedly constantly burned, it was known as a place that was forever consuming on the rubbish that was thrown down into it, but the fires never went out. So in most of its occurrences in the Greek New Testament, Gehenna describes a place of the lost. It's a place of the lost, all right? A a future fearful destination that if any Jew heard, how are you gonna escape going to Gehenna? they would say I have a future that is a horrible, wicked, filthy, destructive location. All right, we got all that? Because of this, Gehenna became the symbol that was used to illustrate the fate of those who rejected him as Messiah, of all those Jews who were living at that time in the biblical age. All right, 11 times Jesus used the word Gehenna in his discourses to describe a future place of judgment for the day and age of the people who did not receive him. And this was prophetically appropriate, okay? Because tens of thousands and perhaps hundreds of thousands of bodies of the Jews were thrown into the Valley of Hinnom, were thrown into Gehenna and burned at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So when Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, how will you escape the torments of Gehenna? He was not talking about Hades and a literal torment of flame there for them. He was talking about actual destruction in this place in the Valley of Hinnom where they would die because the Romans would throw them there. So there we have the context. And because the fires burn up there forever and ever, many people merged Gehenna and all of the ideas about Gehenna end with Hades, and they have called it hell. And they refer to it synonymously as a future place. It's so hot, and the image seems consistent, but it's oxymoronic to congruent biblical study. It's not a congruent study to do that. Now, don't think that I'm the wacko who's the only one who knows this. I'm not. There's a ton of guys who know this. But but because of tradition, many churches and pastors won't teach it. No matter what the oh, no, 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 we know. We don't, we don't know. We have it here in scripture defining it for us, but to, too afraid of losing, losing uh, for saying it. So let's look to the term Hades, which Jesus says here he has the key to. Being that Hades has two parts, a prison and a, and a, and a paradise, it would seem that the key Jesus has has the ability to let people in and to let people out there's the first thing you got all that now we're going to and read in the last chapters of revelation chapter 20 begin at verse 11 the following description of what's going to happen at the end again is he talk is this talking about the end of the age of the biblical people and Jerusalem, or is it describing the end of time when all of us will experience this? Traditionally, the uh, idealists and the historicists and the futurists and the partial preterists say, this is describing the very end of everything and we're waiting for this. The full preterist says, this is describing what happened to the people in the time of Jesus and the nation of Israel, this is the description of what happened to Hades, you ready? John writes, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face, the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. Most people today admittedly say, we're still gonna see that, okay? Then it says, and the sea gave up the dead, which were in it, and death and Hades. Remember, these are the two things Jesus says he holds the keys to in the first chapter, verse 18. And death and Hades delivered up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and Hades, ready for this, were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So, and then we read, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into this lake of fire. That's where the fire is. So we ought to know some things from this. We know that the keys for which Jesus had for Hades and death are only for a period of time. Now, if that period of time's out in our future and we're waiting for it to culminate, fine. Or if it was for after he returned and it would happen for the people at biblical times, fine. But we know that they are only for a period of time. Why do we know that? Because death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. And there's no need for the key anymore. There's no need for a key to get out of that place anymore. They're gonna be cast there and after Hades has been emptied of the dead, that Hades gives up her dead, it says there. All right? So read it really quickly again. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades delivered up. That's that's the place we're calling hell, delivered up the dead, the spiritually dead, the physically dead who were in Hades. It gave them up, which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And then he adds this line: This is the second death. Now remember, back to our original verse: Jesus holds the keys to the Hades and the death. We have, after Hades gives up its dead, another place, this place is a fire, and it's called the second death. Note that either dead or death is mentioned five times in those verses. Now, some questions. Those in Hades, were they spiritually alive or were they still unregenerated spirits? You answer that yourself, I know what I think. And were they physically alive or were they physically dead? Well, I know my answer to that. And my answer is that they were physically dead and they were spiritually dead, okay? So they were both spiritually and physically dead in my opinion, okay? So if they were already spiritually dead because they have not been spiritually reborn here on earth and they went to the prison part of Hades and they are already physically dead because that's how they got to the prison part of Hades, What kind or type of death are those going to experience in what is called the second death? What will happen to them when they go and are cast into the lake of fire? That's the question. Because they're already physically dead and they're already spiritually dead. There's nothing in them that's spiritual because if they were spiritual, they would be in God's presence, not in the prison part of Hades. Some say that this is annihilation. This is what uh, Ellen G. White said from the Seventh-day Adventist, that when they are thrown into the lake of fire, not made for uh, humans, but for Satan and his angels, that that's when they are completely annihilated. Most evangelicals say that's when those souls are tossed into the lake of fire and they are burning forever and ever and ever and ever, screaming in torments in the presence of Jesus and his angels. That's literally what they are saying, okay? Let's stop for a minute, remember, we are presently talking about the nation of Israel, how this applies to the biblical age, remember that. Let's stop for a minute and look at how scripture describes the second death and we'll wrap it up. It's mentioned four times all in the book of Revelation. Now I'm gonna read these passages to you and you listen to how the second death is described. Listen to the tenor of the message. First, to Samaria, uh, excuse me, the church at Smyrna, Jesus says in Revelation 2, verse 11, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit say to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt in the second death. Won't be hurt. That's the language that is used. Doesn't say annihilated, doesn't say utterly destroyed. It says, Those who have overcome will not be hurt. In the presence of God and his angels, the presence of consuming fire. That's the first verse. Second verse, Revelation 26 says, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. But they shall be, those of the first resurrection, be priests of God in Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. we will to talk about what all that means when we get to it. But right now we see that the second death has no power on people who are resurrected in the first resurrection. The second death has power on those who aren't and on those who aren't, they will not be priests. Those who are of the first resurrection will be the priests of God and Christ. But those who are not, will the second death will have power over them, the fire, all right? Third, as we've already noted, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And then from, we can say that the second death location, so to speak, is in the lake of fire. A death is occurring there. Finally, it says in Revelation 21, eight. Now listen to this carefully. But the fearful, have you ever been fearful? And the unbelieving, have you ever not believed? The abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. That's what it says, all liars shall have their part, their part, that's a limited amount of time in the Greek, in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those are the four verses that describe to us what that means, that second death. We have already read that those who take part in the, whoa, take part in the first resurrection. (laughs) You guys all laugh, you guys are asleep, Ty, make a mistake. You guys all, anyone who takes part in the first resurrection that second death will have no power or effect over them. That's what we know. But here we read a description that all the rest will be hurt, will be hurt in its hands, its hands. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable murders, hormonal and all liars shall have their part. So we know it's a partial. It's a portion in the presence of God's fire and which burns with fire and brimstone. We're gonna get to those words. It's gonna blow your mind, which is the second death. Now. We'll have more to discuss and we'll continue next week. But the question I have is when Jesus tells John in all his amazing glory and power, which we read about last week, that he now has, and he has the keys to the Hades and he has the keys to the death. What death do you think he has the keys to? Do you think he just has the keys to physical death? Do you think he has the keys to spiritual death? Of course, you die spiritually when you're born, you're dead spiritually, he gives you new life, so he has the keys. Would you say he has keys to the second death? I think he has keys to all death, all of it. I would say, of course. He has the keys to Hades, he has the keys to death. That's what he tells John here. Revelation is gonna describe to us what that second death look like, looks like and who it is for. And we're gonna discuss that when it comes to those two categories in the boxes. But just remember, he has the keys to it. He has the keys to it, and it is a, it is a part that people who don't uh, live with him will experience. And they will be hurt, not destroyed or annihilated. Hurt, and it's a temporary expression there. So we'll have to continue on with that uh, subject of Jesus having the keys to both Hades and death next week. Uh, now, I just said we're going to, Heidi, you, you ready? You, you ready? All right. Heidi uh, has requested, and this is how it always works with us, anybody who wants to request anything, musical numbers, uh, communion, baptisms, weddings, funerals, we do it here, it's, uh, and it's up to you guys, and so in the morning, which is more crowded typically, we have requests for different things, and last week, Heidi requested that we do communion, and you might remember we've done communion many times in the past, and we haven't done it in a while, so she came up, and I said, yeah, let's do it, you lead it because in Christ Jesus, there's no difference between male and female, bond and free. And uh, so Heidi, it's yours. We need a microphone for her. Oh. Come on up. It's on. And do you want to uh, invite people up then? Sure. Okay. Sure.
1: No problem. There you go. Well, I thought, sit on.
0: Hold on. There you go. Well,
1: I thought since it was um, Thanksgiving weekend, it would be a good time for us to come together as believers and take communion. So as I was doing some research, um, I realized, I guess what I didn't before was that the Lord Jesus um, instituted two ordinances while he was here with us. Um, The first one was baptism to be observed by the believer when they first come to um, begin their life in Christ. And then the second one is the Lord's Supper, which is also called Communion, um, to be observed repeatedly throughout the life of the believer as Christ is, um, as a sign of continuing fellowship with Christ. And in Matthew 26, we read, Matthew 26, 26 through 28, we, we read, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> so if you wanna come up, if you would like to take communion with us today, we have um, bread and um, juice here for everyone. Um, and then I would like to just um, maybe share th- three or four more insights. So All right. I want some juice. So come on up. Don't be shy. Oh, there's some over here. I guess the wine is over here, is the and the, juice is, is the there. Yeah. juice is over here. Juice is over here. Three, one, two, three. Take ye, this is my body, which is broken. my body. of christ's death when we participate in the lord's supper or communion we symbolize the death of christ because our actions give a picture of the death that he went through for us when the bread is broken it symbolizes the, the broken body of christ as it was lifted onto the cross as we lift up our bread before partaking of it <laughs> This is The participation in communion is also a symbol of our benefits of Christ's death. Jesus commanded his disciples, take this, take, eat, this is my body, in Matthew 26. As we individually reach out and take the cup for ourselves, each one of us by this action is proclaiming, I am, the, I am taking the benefits of Christ's death unto myself. When we do this, we give a symbol of the fact that the participation in or share in the benefits earned for us by His death. So this is the blood that was shed for our sins and for our forgiveness. We also participate as the unity of believers, remembering that as one loaf of bread is broken into many pieces, so many of our lives are come come together um, to recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And lastly, in John 6, 53 through 57, Jesus talks about us being spiritually nourished. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. For he who eats my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of my Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And now just a word of prayer. Lord, please let us always remember that Christ alone is our nourishment, is the nourishment for our souls that we so desperately need. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Thanks, Heidi.
1: Thank you.